Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest is Dr. David Geary. If you remember from the last time we spoke, Dr. Geary does an excellent job of explaining the neurological side of the subluxation. At the most recent extravaganza, he and I spoke quite a bit with each other about the effect that COVID has had on the nervous system and how those who received the jab demonstrate an entirely different symptom pattern, which indicates a different neurological pattern. The goal of this conversation is simply to understand the neurological root of the symptom pattern so we can better understand how to help these patients. We'll talk a little bit about COVID today, but primarily we want to talk about how to read the neurological patterns to better understand how to help our patients with any condition they might have. So without any further ado, Dr. David Geary. Hello, Dr. Geary. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, Dr. Fowler. Pleasure to be with you once again. So we're going to talk neurology um, because that's what you do best. And so we're going to talk about, um, actually, we've talked about this before. I guess I'll tell the scenario. So I had a student ask me a question, and it had to do with parasympathetic versus sympathetic, and how do you know when you want to be in the parasympathetics, and how do you want to be in the sympathetics? And they asked me a question that was pretty complicated, and I thought, well, I don't know. But I know I can ask Dave Geary and he'll know. So I asked you, and the first thing you said was, well, that whole concept is oversimplified. So we talked a little more about it. So that's what we want to talk about is the oversimplification of sympathetic versus parasympathetic and why we may not want to make it quite so oversimplified and why we might need to bring some of the complication back in in order to really understand how to help people. And you kind of talked about that a little bit last time you were on when you talked about duodenal ulcers versus gastric ulcers and, and how those are a little bit different. So um, – I don't know what the best area to talk about is to demonstrate that, but um, but you could talk about some of the exceptions and why that might be an oversimplification to just think in terms of sympathetic parasympathetic. Yeah, you know, so I I think that ultimately, you know, talking about the neurology piece of this, it really boils down to the whole Gonstead premise and principles, which is find the subluxation, accept it, fix it, and leave it alone, and. And for instance, um, and I might get my numbers wrong on this, but I'll just give you an example. The spinal cord has, I believe, 120, about 120 million neurons, somatic neurons, in the cord itself. But with respect to the autonomic nervous system, I believe it's in the superior sympathetic chain. And I may be wrong on this, but I know that it's, it's, a, it's a 9 to 10 you know, uh, times different, there's approximately 900 and some million neuronal cells in the superior sympathetic chain. So just think about that, you know, when it comes to we make an adjustment. And I remember watching a video with Dr. Gonstead. He said, every time we make an adjustment, especially, and he was referencing the cervical thoracic region, and I think it was C7 in particular, he said, every time you make an adjustment, you're inhibiting cancer. Well, that was a bold statement, you know, back then to be saying something like that. Um, But so many things that he has said have been studied and looked upon, and there's actually reality with that. And so I think when we understand the whole concept of a subluxation and what we do to intervene with being specific within each of these systems, we can have a profound influence, especially when you're dealing with a, a visceral condition and you're questioning is this a sympathetic or parasympathetic 
uh, clinical, you know, situation, where do we start? My first piece of advice to myself is always try the one system you think that makes the most clinical sense. If you have findings in both symptoms or systems, stay with the system that makes most clinical sense. So what's an example of that one? Well, and we, and we talked about this one, you know, the last time we were together, which is a, a good example is a, a gastric versus a duodenal ulcer. And, um, you know, someone that manifests with a gastric ulcer, their symptoms usually occur within 20 to 30 minutes of eating, which is an upset stomach, you know, indigestion. If they lay down, it gets worse. There's just more inflammation, swelling that builds up. Whereas a duodenal ulcer, it's more of a couple hours after a meal. And so there's two different things that are, you know, taking place within the, within the neurology of that. And, and the other thing is, you know, we have this notion that here we are, we intervene and we've got a patient in our office and we find an instrument reading, they're subluxated. We are looking at one piece of a very large puzzle, a picture that, that the part I was talking about oversimplified, that we're observing. There's so many things that are taking place. And when we see this patient in an acute, subacute, or a chronic state, what are we dealing with? Is this subluxation a true direct uh, cause or, or cause of what their complaints are? Or is it a response to something that's going on internally? And that's how we need to interpret it. So the best piece of advice, I think, is when you're considering where to start first with a visceral condition, um, consider staying in the system that makes most clinical sense. So going back real quick to a, a stomach gastric versus a duodenal ulcer, parasympathetic disturbance has a tendency to increase glandular secretions and increase organ speed, increase smooth muscle contracture, whereas sympathetic subluxations have a tendency to do the opposite. They reduce glandular secretions, they reduce organ speed, and they have a tendency to, to create a, a reduced tone, you know, when it comes to smooth muscle. Now there's, there's differences when it comes to the bladder because there's an internal and external sphincter, for example, and they have skeletal muscle versus smooth muscle. And so it's all about neurotransmitters and receptor sites. And that's the difference between, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic. At the end of the day, it's, it's all about neurotransmitters and receptor sites and what's happening within that, within that particular field. But uh, a gastric ulcer, when they truly have pressure on the parasympathetics, is increased glandular secretions. So the eating of something, tactile stimulation, that starts the secretory process of uh, digestive enzymes in the stomach already, which sends messages to the stomach. And, and we know this, you know, that's, it, it, it secretes HCL, uh, Zypan, I mean, uh, hydrochloric acid. And um, it starts the digestive process <clears throat> already. Even the sight of food, it starts the whole digestive process. If you have a parasympathetic subluxation, there's already too much of that secretory effect that's happening in the stomach. And the combination of the tactile stimulation of the food that it enters the mouth and it goes down the esophagus and gets into the stomach, that sort of is a net effect of too much acid. And there's not enough mucus lining in the stomach to neutralize the effects of that excess acid. So when the patient comes in and you're asking them, trying to figure out, you know, they definitely have a stomach problem, which, by the way, 
you and I, we don't really see many of these people unless they get it or they get referred by someone who had a stomach you know, problem. We see them, we see them further downstream, you know, mm-hmm. these cases. So they've already usually, been through so much. Yeah. Usually, usually at the very end. Sometimes yes. You know, sometimes yes. So those are the questions you want to ask the patient. And if they have any questions about it, even before I had adjust them, we may consider just wait a day and I'll, uh, I'll instruct them to take a little teaspoon of raw organic apple cider vinegar and put it in a little four to six ounce, you know, Dixie cup water of, uh, with water and have it with dinner tonight and tell me what happens tomorrow. If it helps, okay, we're not thinking it's a parasympathetic problem because that's actually adding more acid in a sense to the stomach. But if it makes it worse, that's kind of, again, that tipping point, a little too much overproduction combined with, you know, the food coming through. So in that situation, if I've got a reading in the upper cervical, especially atlas, and a reading on the eighth thoracic, there's no way I would adjust that eighth thoracic on that visit. We would adjust the atlas. And then we can talk about a little bit too with well, why is there a reading on the eighth thoracic? I always remember Dr. Penderbaker talking about find the major. And and that was the whole premise. And Dr. Gonst is always talking about find your major subluxation. Well, how do we account for these minor or compensatory subluxations neurologically? And so that's where the whole sensory side of the autonomic nervous system comes into play with respect to what we would call, what we refer to as general visceral afferents or special, special visceral afferents, you know, when it comes to taste and smell and things like that. But essentially, when we look at the whole chiropractic premise and philosophy is when we remove a subluxation, all we're doing is enabling the body to adapt to its environment, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. And so when we're thinking about a, a, a gastric ulcer in an atlas subluxation versus an eighth thoracic, and why would you leave that alone? If that afferent side of our autonomic nervous system is working properly, then we would expect to see a subluxation in another system within the innervation to that particular organ system if if the neurology is truly working as it should. And how does that work? Well, these general visceral afferents, they are not part of the autonomic nervous system directly. And this is what took me a while to grasp and understand. Um, uh, for instance, the vagus nerve, and you and I talked about that with, with COVID and uh, the spike proteins and what's actually happening here. But the vagus nerve um, on the afferent side is, is non-myelinated. Right. And that non-myelinated, 80% of that is unmyelinated. So the vagus is assessing what's going on, you know, in, in the internal environment all the way down to the splenic flexure. That's what it's responsible for. So when it picks up a change, it's responding to that environment internally. So with respect to these afferent fibers, you know, part of the GVAs and the special visceral afferents, they have sep- they are separate from the ANS. However, they have both sympathetic and parasympathetic fibers. So they respond to different stimuli with respect to those fibers. For instance, when you have uh, tissue damage and inflammation, 
The GVAs on the sympathetic side have a tendency to get excited and they facilitate that sensory relay back to our brain. When you have stretch and distension, the parasympathetic fibers of the GVAs and the SVAs have a tendency to get excited and they communicate that information back uh, you know, to our brain. So we can essentially, in other words, um, when your bladder is distended, you know, when your bladder starts to get full, it's, it's sensing that stretch. Well, the parasympathetic start to talk and that gets things going and, and there's communication going, but our bladder can, you know, contain, it can handle so many milliliters of, of urine before you actually have to, there's something wrong, I have to go. But that's the, the parasympathetics that are, are, are talking to us about that. And so that's how the stretch and distension communicates with the nervous system. And so if we truly had a gastric ulcer, then we would expect there to be tissue damage, wouldn't we? And inflammation in the stomach lining. So this, the, the sympathetics on the GVA side of that are starting to get excited. That's where we can see that, that, um, that visceral somatic relay to the eighth or ninth thoracic, wherever you find that compensatory, you know, assuming it's compensatory subluxation. So if that's true and we start fixing an atlas, so we've got an ASLP atlas, or excuse me, an ASRP atlas, and so that's a, in theory affecting the left vagus, right? Yep. Um, and we start fixing that. One would expect to see a reduction without doing anything on that eighth or ninth, wherever you find it, thoracic subluxation. Why is that? Because if we're doing our job chiropractically and we're reducing that increased excess acid, you know, production from a subluxation in the, in the parasympathetics, creating that overstimulation, then we should have less excoriation in the stomach lining wall. Therefore, less inflammation and, and tissue damage that is being assessed and picked up by the GVA system that's going back and communicating. And I, the, the best case I had on this uh, was two years ago, and I mentioned this at a seminar. I had a military uh, gentleman, young guy, uh, been married just four or five years, had a baby, and he had terrible mid-thoracic pain. And so, you know, and this is easy, and it's it's a human nature. You get in a hurry, take a film, you, 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 you scope, examine him, take a film. Sure enough, that seventh thoracic subluxation. Well, that's where the pain's coming from. I didn't bother to delve anything into, and I'll be honest, you know, talking about getting into too much with systemic health. Because he didn't check anything off, Doc. Okay. So, and so that's why we can't be just technicians, right? We have to be, you know, chiropractors. And so I, I remember because I've documented this very well. I saw him four times. I adjusted T7, then I adjusted T8 one time. And not a change. And he had to go for two weeks for, you know, training regimen. And so he came back and I asked, you know, so how you doing? So I'm really not that much better. The light just went on. That's that's when it was. I said, do you have any digestive troubles? Oh, my stomach hurts all the time. I mean, tell me about it. what's happening. How soon after eating? Oh, I can't get 20, 30 minutes without, you know, having an upset stomach. I remember Dr. Alex Cox once said, he said, you know, if you make a poor adjustment, don't ever let the patient know that. But fix it. Do it right. You don't want to lose a patient's confidence and faith. Well, 
I, I made the mistake, and I don't think it was a mistake, but I told him, I said, you know what, I don't think your problem directly is here. I think it's up here, you know, after examining him, scoping and palpating. I said, I think we missed it. And and so um, it was an ASRP atlas. Mm. And it was one adjustment. He came back two days later, you know, and he said, oh, what did you do to me, you know? The first thing I said is, how's your mid-back pain? He said, well, that's a lot better. But my stomach, let me tell you about my stomach. That was one adjustment, you know? So I followed up. I did one more adjustment. I haven't seen him for two years. That's that's the constant difference. And that's breaking down sympathetic and parasympathetic and understanding, yes, not only is there an efferent relationship that goes on that we mostly think about in our minds as far as, you know, making corrective adjustments, but there's a whole afferent side that's, enabling our body to adapt. And when it cannot adapt, that's when a subluxation happens. And then we have to choose where to intervene appropriately. You know? Yeah, that's so amazing to think about that because I really noticed that pattern. When you've got somebody like that, you're going to get a mid-thoracic and an upper cervical, like almost every time. But I never thought about it as if the atlas is the problem, it creates a stomach problem causing the eighth thoracic. But in reverse, if you have the eighth thoracic, you're going to be low on your mucus. So you're going to Basically, you're probably, well, you'll be lowering your acid, so you're probably going to get distension. And then that's going to talk to the atlas. Yeah. So like, you'd almost expect to find both on anybody who has that, and See? so you have to know which one to go after. And, and that's exactly right. So, and, and that's a duodenal ulcer that can get to that point, you know. So if you have a sympathetic, a truly sympathetic efferent subluxation, like an eighth thoracic problem, and, and we know then if that's the case – that has a tendency to reduce glandular secretions, organ speed, and mucus secretion. That's a, you know, secretion. So now we, this is more common that we see more, more day-to-day, which is achloridia in the stomach, you know, lack of digestive aid in the stomach. And, and most people are on proton pump inhibitors, and they're taking, they're on any, I mean, um, digestive aid. I mean, any, any acids, excuse me. And so, and I always ask them right away, does that help? You know, or does it not help? Because then that helps us think it through too. But if they truly have a, a sympathetic subluxation, then in theory they're going to have a reduction of the digestive aid. And so what happens when food goes down the esophagus and it gets to the stomach and it doesn't properly break down? It sits there and it putrefies. And an hour or two after eating. They'll, they'll say, well, that's when I really get an upset stomach and indigestion, you know, and sometimes I feel that acid coming right up through. Well, right away, the, the MD will say, well, you need to be on an antacid. It's too much too, too much acid production. <clears throat> no, it's the unferm, undigested food that's fermenting. Mm-hmm. So when the, when the food is in the stomach, there are signals that take place to the pancreas to enable that food to go from the stomach to the small intestine. And there has to be that proper environment in the stomach for that to take place. So if the food gets dumped into the duodenum, or let's just say this, when the food finally gets dumped into the duodenum, that triggers relay mechanisms back to the pancreas to release digestive enzymes in the duodenum. And so that's how we break down that food what we call chyme. It's bolus once it's in the stomach. It becomes chyme once it's emulsified and it moves through, of course. Now that chyme sits in the in the uh, duodenum and it's digesting even further. 
How does that shut off? Well, and this is guidance physiology, and it's amazing, you know, what they talk about. If the if you have an acidic environment in the stomach, there are neurological relays that go back to the pancreas telling it to release sodium bicarbonate, which is what? It's a neutralizer. So that's neutralizing then the effects of the acid into the duodenal region area. And so that's how normal digestion takes place. It shuts off the digestion. It keeps moving on down the path. However, if we have a sympathetic subluxation, we're going to have an alkaline environment in the stomach. So that message is, is interpreted as keep the digestive aid going in the, in the small intestine, in the duodenum. There's no release of sodium bicarbonate. And so you start to get an excoriation on the duodenal wall. Duodenal wall. But that symptom happens two to three hours after eating because it takes time for that to get dumped into the duodenum and for the whole process with the pancreas to take place. So that's a big difference between a gastric and a duodenal ulcer. It's the time frame in between um, and, and how we interpret that. So there, in that case, we want to stimulate the stomach to do a better job of increasing digestive aid. So it can allow that environment to dump the food into the duodenum properly, but also to be that relay for the, the pancreas to pick that acidic environment up in the stomach so that it can release the sodium bicarbonate to, to neutralize the, the digest, digestion in the, small, in the duodenum. That's interesting because it's become, I think it's become kind of popular that just like the, uh, the apple cider vinegar can make it better or worse, but it's become yeah. kind of popular to tell people to take baking soda with some water, which yeah. again could make it better or worse. But what nobody's ever asking is why is the pancreas not releasing it in the first place? Why do you have to take baking soda? Why can't it just do its job? Because that would be an obvious neurological problem. Um, and so it's the same kind of thing. It'll make it better or it'll make it worse depending on what your problem is. And then you got to guide as to where you're going. Um, now, let's, let's, let's back this up even another step so that we put on another hat other than just running the scope, palpating, and it's on the efferent side, we have to fix it. What if this is an individual who's abusing their diet and they're, and they're maybe in a, a stressful relationship, let's say a, a divorce, and they hate their job, or whatever stressor is driving you know, that sympathetic system, you know? And, and, it, and unless we recognize that as a contributor, we're not gonna fully help that patient. And I believe that's where, you know, the interpretation of what's causing what. What are we seeing? Are we seeing a true efferent side of a subluxation? Or are we seeing uh, an afferent side that's manifesting somatically, you know, with our findings? Either way, we're going to fix it. We better fix the right one. But understanding how it all relates together, you know, and as, a, as a holistic approach, um, it's constant. You know? well, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things I, I've been thinking about this a lot is the whole issue of stress and stressors and yeah. what are they really doing physiologically. And even from what you just said, it kind of sounds like what they're doing is they may not be the cause of a problem, but they're kind of ramping it up almost like a, um, a repeater station that's taking the stimulus that's there and just magnifying it several times. Uh, yeah. Is that kind of what it does with the nervous system? It just kind of amps it up and pushes it closer to a threshold? You know, we're, we're all receptor-driven. Everything that takes place neurologically has to do with neurotransmitters and receptors. And any type of stressor that's introduced in the body is going to engage the sympathetics, which fires up more noradrenaline, 
and that that is what fires up that whole first of all that systemic cascade of prostaglandin e2 which is you know destructive to overall good health and immune system and so yes a stress creates more noradrenaline production a subluxation in the sympathetics creates more noradrenaline production so we're we're receptor driven and, and trans neurotransmitters are you know that intermediary for that to happen so it, it certainly does you know but what's interesting in with the with the cranial nerves and how that relates to this whole cranial nerve dysfunction general visceral afferents with respect to the vagus they are pseudo unipolar unmyelinated axons they they are separate from the ans because technically their first synapse is in the nodose ganglion which is outside the brainstem right and of course we know that there's there's a nodose ganglion on either side of the transverse process of c1 so there's an influence with that now from the nodose it projects into the brainstem into the nucleus tractus solitoris and so what's so fascinating with the nts is that virtually all and you and you can correct me and i i think it's all but the optic and the vestibular cochlear have convergence in the nucleus tractus solitoris so if you in theory have the vagus that's monitoring what's going on internally and that communication goes into the nodose which ultimately projects into our brainstem and the nts it's a wonderful picture of how our nervous system is adapting to its environment mm -hmm. right so if we're trying to adapt to something that's going on and the vagus communicates that now we can get inside that brainstem and pathways are, are converging and interconnected that can eventually get to the hypothalamus, get to our efferent side, which can start to deal with whatever needs to be dealt with within the body. If you have an atlas subluxation, that's an interference in theory with that nodose ganglion transmission. Mm -hmm. And so that's where when we go back to um, COVID or for anything, any kind of a, you know, an infection, you know, manifestation, an upper cervical adjustment can have profound results because of that very concept of how it has a direct influence on the on the nodose ganglion, and um, and with respect to COVID, all those spike proteins, you know, were involved in, and they translate up into and connect and get into. And you mentioned that in that one study that it is because I asked you, we had to talk about this. I asked you, you know, I'm listening to Dr. Stephanie Sanoff, and she's saying these spikes get on the vagus and they get into the the brain, of course, we know the neurology about that, but is that truly the case? Or going back to Dee Dee Palmer's concept of tone, is there a disafferent tone taking place from the vagus, picking that up internally in the body? And that's what tra translates to the nodos and the brainstem. Or is it both? I mean, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But that's the concept. So, and, and just to continue that further, Acute and chronic. You know, when, when we have an acute subluxation, it's completely different than when we have a chronic subluxation. And and one of the things that happens when, and we know this, when we're, we have a subluxation stemming from an injury is it goes through a, a cascade of, you know, healing residuals. And if it's a pretty significant trauma, that end result, you know, 
if it's if it if there's you know clinical manifestation beyond three months it'll go into what's called remodeling of course and that leads to over time tissue you know myofibrositis scar tissue well what exactly is that is happening with that when you have myofibrositis scar tissue raises our resting threshold for an action potential to take place so when when a a tissue neurofibril when a scar tissue neurofibril is activated there's a depolarization that takes place which allows glutamate to be released and that's through these these nmda receptors which are all part of the glutamate cascade and then you know when you look at that peripherally or centrally whether it's in the a peripheral region or in the cord itself, that that whole concept takes place. We know to be wind up and central sensitization or peripheral sensitization, but it's all because of this scar tissue, these neurofibrils, that that create an increased resting potential, which makes it easier for an action potential to take place, causing the 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 um, glutamate release, the the depolarization of a cell. Okay. So let's go back practically. Why is it a patient with a, a D4 fifth lumbar seems to need more adjustments than the other one? That's a healthier disc. It's this myofibrositis, you know, the disc damage that has been replaced with what was once healthy crisscross ligamentous fibers, you know, like more like a rubber band. It's replaced with this fibrotic scar tissue. And there are studies that talk about this scar tissue. They relate it to semiconductors. Mm-hmm. Semiconductors that have more of an affinity to inflammation because of exactly that. These the breakdown, the, the action potential that's raised or the resting potential that's raised. So in other words, here's our resting potential right here. And we go back to our physiology. You know, an action potential takes place like this. So it has to reach a certain threshold for that action potential to take place. Mm-hmm. If we raise the resting threshold, and here's still our ceiling, there's less of an action potential required to depolarize that cell. Mm-hmm. That's why this chronic scar tissue enabling inflammation to, to, to be there makes it easier for us to see a chronic subluxation with our, our, our objective findings. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so that's that's something that we see every day in practice, you know. And, and and one of the things that I think you wanted to talk about was our, our scope rating. And I, I tell you where I'm at right now um, with this because I was when I was preparing for the, the extravaganza, the last seminar. I had a slide that I had from about six seven years ago talking with instrumentation, and you know trying to understand what all takes place with an instrument reading. And it's the posterior primary division at that time that, that I was teaching or, or speaking about. And that came from the text, uh, Darby and Kramer. I think it's a second edition. And that was the best schematic I could find where they actually peeled back tissue layers and they showed posterior primary division. You have the medial and the lateral branch. The lateral branch is what innervates the subcutaneous tissue from the PPD. So that would make sense in our mind. You know, if we get a scope rating, it's it's there's got to be that inner relay with firing up that the PPD, the lateral branch. 
But here's a problem, and I didn't realize it until I was looking at this slide because I'm looking at these GSAs, general somatic afferents, and how that relates to you know some of our findings. I was just scratching my head a little bit. The lateral branch of the PPD at the level of involvement goes down almost two levels to the skin, inferior. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny, what happened? <laughs> You're up. And I, and, and I, Plowers book, you know, the purple book, you know, you, you look that up and it's CGRP and, and calcitonin gene related peptide. Yes, for sure. There's involved with that. We know anytime you got a nociceptor, you're going to have these things. It doesn't have to be within the spine anywhere, but that didn't make sense. If it went down almost two segments to the skin, how can we say that's the intermediary relay mechanism that gives us our scope reading? Because the, if that's the case, then we should not be seeing a scope reading there. We should be seeing it down here for this level of one and a half to two levels up above. Yep. It didn't make sense to me. Really bothered me. And I got to be honest, I thought, I don't know if I want to teach this because I'm not, I'm not at a point where I can handle this yet. So like I do when I get really stumped, I call Dr. Mary Tookshire at Northwestern Chiropractic College. I say, <laughs> Dr. T, I need some help understanding this because I was, I was looking at the whole, the GSA and the somatization, you know, internally and how we're to interpret this. And, 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 I, and I dropped her the book off. And if anybody knows Mary, you know, you, you won't get an answer right away. She's very busy and she's thoughtful. And we appreciate that. But after talking to her and her input, it started to make more sense that it's the GSA that's responsible when you have a disc that's inflamed from a subluxation. It's the GSA that's likely responsible, the GSA fibers that are, in, that are firing off from a, a, a subluxation, an injured disc. Those GSAs do a, the one thing, we know this, they go right to the lamina two in the, in the dorsal horn. That's the first primary synapse that we'll have so that we start to begin the process of interpreting that, you know, super segmentally and how that relates. But that GSA most likely also goes directly to the subcutaneous level adjacent to the skin. And so when you go back and you look at the chapters and Dr. G talking about uh, it's the disc swelling, you know, sometimes what, almost a half an inch below the surface that we're to pick up and assume that's what we're picking up. Okay, I think that was more close to the truth and reality of it than then the little bit of the um, deviation we took, you know, neurologically trying to interpret and put all this together with with uh, CGRP and the posterior primary division and where that goes, I think it's very simply that GSA has an additional branch that goes to the skin, and that's what we're picking up. But that GSA then, of course, also goes to lamina 2 in, in the uh, uh, dorsal horn, and, and that's part of the whole relay mechanism that we interpret with our subluxation findings. So that got me thinking a little bit more, too, about if we're really honest with ourselves, you know, and, and you've, you're scoping a patient and you're palpating a patient, and let's say we've got, a, a, again, that D5 disc, chronic subluxation, and they're getting better and they're doing better and you scope them and you still got a reading there and you still feel that swelling there. But when you actually feel the intersegmental 
you know, the Gonstead intersegmental range of motion is really doing good. And, and of course, they're feeling better. I, I think a little differently now with that because I think it's more easy to see a scope reading most of the time to one extent or another, albeit it should be much less when we first started with them. And I think we'll see some residuals of inflammation at that location of the subluxation site because of the whole concept of tissue myofibrositis, chronic inflammation, semiconductors, you know, that add to this. I think it's there. It's going to be with them because that's a permanent static change. We can change centrally in lamina two with our adjustments, the pain response. But I don't think we can reverse the tissue myofibrositis. So therefore, I think that people that get frustrated with the instrument and scope, I think we just need to open up the understanding just a little bit more and realize it's one tool. And when we have a, a degenerative disc and we have the whole scar tissue notion going, just know there's always going to be a little more inflammation there than the next person who doesn't have that. Therefore, we would expect to see a little more swelling and inflammation along with probably a little bit of a scope reading. But the net improvement is that intersegmental range of motion. And so to me, that is a factor in when to leave it alone. Mm -hmm. And I, I, my humble opinion, <clears throat> I think Dr. Gonstead was so focused in on a patient interaction visit by visit that with his skill set and, and tactile, you know, abilities, he knew when to leave it alone. And that maybe didn't get communicated effectively to that next two and three generations down um, other than, well, <clears throat> you know, he knew when to leave it alone. So I'd like to understand that a little bit more. And I think this possibly might be a piece of that. Yeah. Well, I was thinking when you've got a swollen nerve, isn't that related to um, axonal flow? And like basically you're getting it pinched off and so you're building up like back pressure. So just yeah, like okay. getting a tub, it's not gonna drain instantaneously. So once you free it up, the nerve's gonna lag behind on the swelling side because it still needs to drain the tub, so to speak. And so you wouldn't, you really wouldn't expect to get an immediate change in the scope reading, but like you said, you should get a change in how the joint functions. Yeah, yeah. One would expect that in a perfect environment. You yeah, know? yeah. I think I think it's all relative. For instance, sympathetic, you know, the the, the sympathetic fibers are um, unmyelinated. Parasympathetic fibers, you know, are primarily myelinated, and um, and so the difference in speed. Say, for instance, when we're talking about nociception versus mechanoreception, you know, I mean, a nociceptive fiber fires, you know, what 0.2 to one meter per second. A mechanoreceptive fiber fires 120 meters per second. So our, our change, neurological change from an adjustment centrally is just like adjusting the bathtub water from scalding hot to more lukewarm immediately mm -hmm. because we're changing the neurology of that. But what doesn't change overnight and sometimes never completely becomes right is the, the permanent myofibrositis in the, the scar tissue, which is the driver of that whole you know, phenomenon. Yeah. How would you reverse that? Does that reverse over time or is that now a permanent feature of that joint? So I, I think if, if you look at the literature and I don't have any references, you know, to cite right now, I think it's, I think it's permanent. 
I don't think, and, and we would say that if you have a D5 disc, you don't see that changing. You can't, you can't regenerate that, you know, and, and what do we know about, you know, scar tissue? Well, it's, 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 there's more, when it comes to the disc, there's less crisscross fibers. They're stiffer. And so that in and of itself creates more of an environment for inflammation because it leads to hypomobility, you know, the whole concept. So, yeah, I don't think that ever goes away. And I think the, the data, the research is, is pretty consistent with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then going back to what we talked about before, but kind of tying this in, um, yeah. I've been seeing a lot of people lately with, um, I, w- I would say, are bowel problems. Um, I might even describe it as like segments of bowel paralysis. So really? I've noticed a lot of people having, um, what's weird is I practice in two different places and it's only in one office, which is kind of weird. Anyway, um, it's all, um, it's, I, I would say it's all transverse colon. Um, and so, um, so it's just, it's just weird because you get the scope reading, but typically you get the same thing. You get something yeah, that yeah. you would equate sympathetically to that area. And then you would get yeah. something that you would equate parasympathetically. And you're like, so which one's doing it? Yes, um, exactly. Even exactly. after you adjust it, you don't get a change in the scope reading. So you palpate and go, well, it seems better. Let's just yeah. cross our fingers and go with it. I, and, and too, with the gut health, I mean, the whole bioterrain, you know, uh, phenomenon that's going on. I mean, my goodness, you know, we live in such a, a processed, you know, world. And, and um, if you read anything lately about Mercola, his, his number one destructive thing to stay away from are, are the omega-6 vegetable oils because of what they do to create inflammation and that whole prostaglandin E2 effect on systemic health. So I think, I, I think it's difficult today in practice because we have to consider the whole dietary influence, you know, on systemic health. There's a whole separate, the enteric nervous system is a completely separate nervous system from sympathetic and parasympathetic, but it's a brain in and of itself. You can take, and you know this, you take the from the mouth to the anus, you can take it out and put it in a petri dish. It works if you stimulate it. And so that's that's the the reality we live in. And so again, are we dealing with a direct efferent side of this, or is this something manifesting from an afferent response to something going on, you know, internally? You know, like the smoker and what the damage they do to their lungs. We keep seeing a, a thoracic mid upper thoracic subluxation. Well, we keep fixing and fixing. Stop smoking. Yeah. You know, try to get some help with more antioxidants. I mean, those are the things that we have to deal with more today than ever before in our past. And, um, and so that's what makes it a challenge. And, and having a good understanding of the nervous system, I think, helps us get there. But at the end of the day, all this talk about nerves going here and nerves going there and, and I mean, I've, I've got to the point where there's so much we don't know. It's still find it, accept it, fix it, and leave it alone. And, and that is just so true. That's, if I get excited about teaching something, it's always how to be a better chiropractor Monday to find out where that pressure is to fix it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the reality yeah. of it. Yeah, it's funny because the, the, the neurology gives you some clues, but when you start getting bogged down in it, that's, I always just go back to, just find the subluxation, fix it. And it'll take care. Of, it'll take care of everything. Whatever, whatever that neurology is. Yep. Um, yep. It's so true. <clears throat> so true. Well, well, you're right because um, with the inflammation and stuff, it seems like more and more now than when I was younger. Patients come back and they keep having the same recurrent thing, 
and you don't know yeah. if it's because they're smoking or drinking or something like that, or if they just have a high inflammatory diet and it just keeps pumping it back yeah. up. Or where I live, I've found this one years ago, it gets incredibly hot. And I've found that once it gets over about 110 degrees, the heat itself can create enough inflammation to perpetuate a problem. Yeah, especially well, when it's 120. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think too, like for instance, on concussions and uh, just cell membrane function and, and the whole concept of fluidity, you know, of course, our lipid profile uh, is so important you know, when it comes to, you know, the relationship of good to bad fats and um, healthy to bad fats. And so kids and, and young adults that get injured and they have these concussions and why do some get better and, and others take longer, you know, to recover? I think the net effect of that has to do with diet and altered fats that are taken up into our, our cell membrane profile. And when that tissue damage occurs, you've got a, a leakage of calcium, but you also have that calcium leak with arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid gets into circulation and the um, COX enzymes are what create the, the physiological transfer to prostaglandin E2. And that's where we get the whole, you know, systemic inflammatory profile, which causes autoimmune disorders, leads to more cancer. It's it's like um, our innate, and we don't have time for this one, maybe another time, but our innate immune system is our fir first line of defense. Mm -hmm. It would be like telling the sentry guards to go get drunk and sleep it off in the barracks. And our system is left unchecked. And that's what systemic inflammation does uh, over time. And um, and so then we, we end up picking up these fish further downstream and we're trying to figure out what's what do we need to do to fix them. Well, it's sometimes a lot more than adjustments. We have to help them with their diet and understand. We're all about net effects. You know, I don't know if you remember that game of Kerplunk. I'm old enough to remember it. You put all these straws in that little silo. You got all these marbles in there. And pull out a straw and is a marble going to fall out? And the next person pulls out a straw. We're, we treat with, um, it's all about net effect. You know, what's a contributor to this problem? And our subluxation is sacred. And that could be a direct efferent side of that, or it could be an, or it could be an afferent manifestation side of that. How do we address that? Yeah. Yeah. That, that is where the neurology gets very complex. Um, yes. I did, I did a, um, I did an episode a long time ago. It was actually on the spleen. That's what it's entitled, it's the spleen. Yeah. But it was the fact that the parasympathetic to the spleen, the spleen doesn't have direct parasympathetic innervation, and it relies on the immune system. So once again, if you've decreased your immune system, if you've altered your immune system, yes. you've then altered the parasympathetic effect to your spleen, and I presume a number of other organs as well. Um, yeah. So it's true that overall immune function now becomes critical for just normal function. And Yeah. In fact, um, to, to your point, I don't have the citation for that study. It's the brain, the, the super system highway, I think it's called. Anyway, there is zero parasympathetic innervation to primary and secondary immune organs. Zero. It's all sympathetic. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's part of the, you know, probably the God's master plan to enable us to the fight or flight, you know, for the adaptation process. And, and again, the the relay response to the other side of it to adapt to what's going on. Yeah. yeah it's interesting because we often, um, a lot of people focus on the neck and the low back, which are parasympathetic. And we often yeah. take the middle sympathetic portion for granted. 
And yet that always bothers me because if they're sympathetic is your immune system, you're like just playing with people's immune system instead of really being serious about what you're doing in there. Yeah. I think the, the more we get in practice and take the work serious and really think about what we're doing and not just, you know, running the chop shop, you're going to find that you're going to adjust less areas, less frequently. And it's because you gain a little more of a respect, you know, for your work. Mm-hmm. And we should charge more for what we do. My gosh, you know, but that's that's the other thing, too. You know, when you think about what we do and how in a profound effect it can have on a patient, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been a fun conversation. I like my Always good talking to you. You take care. You too. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Geary for joining me today. I appreciate Dr. Geary, and I always look forward to speaking with him, as he's done more to help me straighten out some of my incorrect neurological thinking than anybody else. Hopefully, he's helped you in that same way today. I have to tell you a little secret. I normally wouldn't share this if it hadn't played out the way that it did, but Dr. Geary and I had to work out a time in both of our busy schedules, so that meant that on my side, I was recording in the middle of the day between blocks of patients. I had at least an hour for us to record, but my next patient showed up about a half hour early. It's crazy hot in the desert, so I let them into my office while I recorded the second half of that conversation you just heard. It was a woman with her four children. When the conversation was over, she said, wow, that's incredible. I had no idea chiropractors put so much thought into what they do. And I said, unfortunately, most don't, but we're trying to change that. I then said, honestly, do you know very many medical doctors that could keep up with that conversation? And she said, no, most just prescribe drugs. They aren't too concerned with what's going on inside you. I tell you that because I think it's important to remember that the present state of chiropractic was set by what was done before, but the future of chiropractic will be determined by what we do today. There's a saying that grateful people sit under trees they did not plant, and great people plant trees under which they will not sit. The trees we plant today will determine the shade that future generations of chiropractors will sit under. Conversely, I do believe that medicine is suffering today for their practices of the past. I have a friend who works in a hospital, and he told me this week that from what he's seen, he believes there's an effort to destroy medicine. Now, that's a whole different podcast, but I simply want to make the point that today's actions determines tomorrow's future. Not just for the profession, but for you and your office individually. Dr. Goss has said, our future will be our results. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.